0: Well, folks, tonight, um, I'm going to be looking. We're going to be looking at a few things related to Christmas <clears throat> that I just couldn't quite fit in on a Sunday morning. So, um, I would ask you to turn to Luke two, beginning in verse twenty-two, and you can also turn. You can just kind of put a finger in Isaiah the Isaiah 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 area, somewhere right in there. We'll look in in Luke 2 and we're looking tonight at how God shows His sovereignty. Sovereignty is a word that we don't don't use very much outside of church. We don't talk about anyone being sovereign. Uh, We don't talk about our, in our system of government at least, we don't talk about people being sovereign um, unless, we're <laughs> unless we're making some accusations, but um, uh, our God is sovereign. Uh, there is no democracy that confers uh, to him what he ought to do. He is sovereign, and He does, the Bible says, all that He pleases. Now, that's good for us, because our God is a holy God, and He is a good God, and He has our best in mind, but He is sovereign. Um, These things are, I would even say, uh, more foreign to us uh, because of the ways that, that we have always come to think of how our government should treat us. We, we vote for all of our elected leaders, which is a blessing, right? But there are things, and others have noted this, uh, Mark Dever has noted this, that in, in the old country, uh, in, in Great Britain, in continental Europe, givenness, it's a little more easy for those folks to accept the fact that they have rulers over them. That's, that's a little more in their heritage. And, of course, we are a little more, I don't know, proud of our independence, right? And so it's important to reflect when we see God's sovereignty, uh, this, is a, this is a very good thing. Uh, I'd just like to read Luke 2, 22 through 38, just to set the pace and then we'll look at a couple of things as we reflect on how God's giving to us a son at just the right moment and in just the right way shows us a little bit about his character, a little bit about his nature. So we're in Luke 2, 22, And it says this, And when the time came for their purification, it's talking about, it's talking about um, Mary and Joseph, And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Preached a whole sermon on this man last year at Christmas. I don't expect you to remember it, but I did. And then, of course, as we were looking just a couple of weeks ago about what does it mean for Israel to be consoled? Why did Israel need consolation? Um, if, if the answer to that question doesn't come very quick to your mind, I will say, go back and listen to that sermon. I don't have time for that right now, but this is a man, Simeon, was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, and he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant, in other words, now you're letting me depart in peace. You're letting me die a happy man, he's saying, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. And listen to this. There was a prophetess, prophetess Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, Of the tribe of Asher. And she was advanced in years, just like Simeon, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all, listen to this, to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, it's important to do a little bit of background here. What happens before these events of Christ's birth and His coming into the temple to be dedicated to to the Lord is some, of course, 400 years of silence. It would be a very easy time for the people to believe that God had departed from them. It would be a very easy time for them to believe that that God had left them and and to add to all this At the close of the Old Testament, the the Israelites are still slaves in Persia. They're still in Persian captivity. The Old Testament kind of ends on this to-be-continued note. Not only this, but the Jewish people then later are ruled by the Greeks and then by the Romans. This is a far cry from the days of David when, when they were a people. And they were somebody. They were a force to be reckoned with. And they want to get back to those good old days. They're hoping that there will be a king who will come to take them back to those good old days. Maybe Jesus would be that king, some of them think. They're fractured into groups like the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Essenes and the Sadducees. They're yearning for a rescuer. They're yearning for someone to restore them to their former glory. But think about how God is sovereign during this moment. After 400 years of silence, what does God do? He sends His Son into the world at just the right time, this this very strange moment in history where where the Greek language had, had spread throughout much of what was called the world at that time. The Greek language had become... What there's this Latin word for it, the lingua franca, it just means the common language. Greek had become the common language. For the first time in history, much of the world could communicate with one another. I mean, even the Jews of this time and in this area spoke Greek. Everybody spoke Greek. And it is into this moment that God sends His Son and the New Testament will be written. The Old Testament had been translated into Greek. So suddenly, when God is about to send His salvation, He does it at a time when that message can spread like wildfire through a common language. The barriers of, of, of language were not as much as they had been at one time. God is not simply preparing a people. He's preparing a moment He's preparing the world into which the gospel will spread. Think about God's sovereignty. God is sovereign in the silence. During all those 400 years, God was sovereign. He had not left His people. He was working. He was preparing the men. He was preparing the women. He was preparing the language. He was preparing the governmental rulers to bring about the perfect moment for His Son to enter the world and for the gospel message to spread. God was sovereign in the silence. I'd say also, for you, for me, tonight. God is sovereign in our silence. Whenever we feel like we're going through a season that is marked by drought, we see here in Luke chapter 1 that God remembered. Look at Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. Luke 1.5 says this, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child. Because Elizabeth was barren. And both were advanced in years. Who really broke the silence, that 400-year silence? There's a sense in which Jesus broke it, because he is, after all, God coming, on to, coming into the world to take on flesh. But who was the one who came as a forerunner? Who was the one who came to break the silence that the Lamb of God was coming into the world? It was John the Baptist. And his parents had been walking through their own silence. His parents were righteous and devout before God, but they had no child. God remembered even their silence. This shows us that it's possible to be very faithful, very devout, and at the same time very disappointed in this life. But God remembers His people. Friends, I would say, as of course you, you would know this from listening to the things that I try to emphasize, and from the sermon last Sunday morning, not everyone who is disappointed always gets victory over their disappointment in the way that they desire, but the Bible consistently, consistently points us to this fact that God knows, and God hears, and God sees, and God loves, even those who are disappointed. Zachariah and Elizabeth they had their disappointments. God chose to show His glory through their inability. He worked a miracle. They were, they were barren. They were advanced in years. They were too old. And God worked a miracle. Even if God doesn't come through in the ways that we expect, we should take rest that our situation is anything but wasted. God will redeem our weakness. And our inability somehow to make himself look strong because he is strong. God is sovereign in the silence. But secondly, or, or in addition to this, God is sovereign in preserving a remnant. You know, remnant's kind of an interesting word, isn't it? It's just a word that means a leftover piece, maybe. Sometimes you can go to a carpet outlet and buy a carpet remnant. It's kind of a cut-off piece of what somebody else bought, right? You can get the leftover and maybe you can make it work for your little project or something like that. But imagine this. After all these 400 years of silence, people are looking for, for what they're looking for. They're looking for a military leader or they're looking for some, something else. God, in the midst of all of this, has still preserved a remnant, those who were truly believing in him. Those who have seen the Scriptures, read the Scriptures, know what the Scriptures mean, and will believe. After the people of God went through dark, dark years. Friends, I would say, when we look at Simeon and Anna, these two people who were advanced in years, righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, Right, they're waiting for God to make good on His promises. When we see these people who are standing out, almost like they're sticking out like a, thor- a sore thumb, nobody else is looking for what they're looking for. Nobody else expects Christ the way that they do. And, and when and when the parents bring the baby Jesus into the temple, immediately they that's that's the one we've been waiting for. Simeon and Anna say, no matter how dark the days get. God will always preserve a true remnant. He will preserve a people. Friends, this is a good word for us. As our culture continues to head into darker and darker days, God will preserve a remnant. He will preserve His true church. Um, He's sovereign to do that. Um, And I would say, just as a word of application... The kind of faith that we have is shown by the kind of Savior we expect. What kind of Savior are you looking for? I know that Jesus has come, right? He's already come. He's done His work. But there are uh, folks are looking, and if we're not careful, we will too. We'll kind of want Jesus to be who we want Him to be instead of who He is. The kind of faith that we have is shown by the kind of Savior that we're expecting. Are you expecting, your, your, are you expecting Jesus to just be one Savior among many? That's a very popular view. That there are many ways to God. Well, the Scriptures say that there is only one name under heaven given among men by which we may be saved what the Scriptures say. We can't have Jesus the way we want Him. We only get to have Jesus the way He is. We can't create a Savior in our own image. We have to come to the Scriptures to get our idea of who He is. Another point about God's sovereignty. He is sovereign in sending a son. There's a lot of S's there. But God is sovereign in how He sent a son. Uh, this, this notion, this idea of, of a righteous remnant, it runs through Scripture. We see it time and time again. Think about it. When, uh, when, when Jericho was about to fall, uh, we, we think about it in, in other times uh, in the Old Testament. God had a people that He was preserving for Himself. Spies went into the land. And they encounter Rahab, right? Out of this city, out of this enemy city, there's Rahab. And she believes in the God. She believes in Yahweh, right? And God remembers her. And she, turns out, ends up being in the lineage of Jesus, the believing believing remnant of the Lord. Simeon, we see he is here. The culture around him is bought into these false ideas of who Jesus would be. Simeon doesn't. He's the remnant. Anna doesn't. She is part of the remnant. And Simeon's and Anna's faith is well-placed because God had come through on incredible promises every time in the past. Imagine, it's kind of a joke, isn't it, when we watch political debates and we see maybe when the presidential election comes around every four years and you have these debates and both sides are making their promises, right? Right? And then maybe one side who, who makes a bunch of promises and then gets in office, then it's, the watch is on. How many of these promises are we going to make good on? right? And it doesn't matter, regardless of party, regardless of candidate. Nobody, nobody comes through on all of their promises, do they? We see here, though, that all of the promises that God has made in Scripture have come true. I just want to recount a few of these. God promised Abraham and Sarah a child, an inheritance, and a land. And He gave it to them. He gave it to their offspring, right? God gave Noah salvation. He promised before the rain started to fall. God gave Hannah a child. God said that Jesus would be a descendant of Abraham, Genesis 22. And He was. A descendant of David, Second Samuel seven, and he was Acts three, Galatians three, Acts thirteen, Romans one. He would be born of a virgin, Isaiah seven, and he was Matthew 1, 22. twenty two. He'll be born in Bethlehem, Micah five, and he was Matthew two one. Preceded by a forerunner, in other words, there would be a forerunner, someone who would go before him and tell of him. We learn about that in Isaiah and Malachi, and then we see John the Baptist. Not only that, but a miracle occurred in order to get John the Baptist here through his mother and father. And he would be a prophet like Moses. He would be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. He would be a suffering servant. And he would bear the sins of his people. We learn all that in Isaiah 7 through 9. But we hear also, if, you're, if you've got that finger in Isaiah, 10, in Isaiah 7, 8, 9, 10... And Isaiah 10, says this, Isaiah 10, 11. Let's see. I'm sorry, Isaiah 10, 22. Let's start in verse 20, Isaiah 10, 20. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. In truth, a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. It's talking about the exile that they're going to go into, but there's another point that's being communicated to us between the lines. It's the point that we learn of in Romans 11. Not all Israel is Israel, right? There's this big nation, this big nation, but only inside of that big nation are those who are believing, right? We see the same thing in our churches. The parable of the wheat and the tares, right? You can have a church roll that's seven or eight hundred. How many of them can you find on a Sunday morning? Don't know. How many of those are believers? Perhaps even smaller. There is a remnant always within the visible people of God in 10 and 11 it says this in 10:33 if you just kind of scroll down a little further Isaiah 10:33 behold the lord god of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power and the great height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. He's talking about this this judgment that's going to come to his people. Think of the imagery of taking an axe to the bottom of a tree, right? And you cut the tree down. God is saying... I am going to judge my people. I'm going to cut the tree down and the tree is going to fall. But my purposes are not done. He says this in chapter 11 verse 1. Even though think about this, even though the tree has fallen over, look at chapter 11 verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots Shall bear fruit. You ever seen that happen? Or the, there's an old stump, you know, and then you see a little sprig come out of that stump, and something completely new begins to grow where the old tree was. And that's what God is saying is going to happen. He said, my people have sinned. They've walked far from me, so I have to punish them. I have to discipline them, so I'm going to cut the tree down. But there is going to be a sprig that's going to come. And through that, it says, verse 2, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Who's this sounding like? I don't know. And the delight of the Lord, and his delight shall be the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what he sees or decide disputes by what he hears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor. And of course we know even more powerful things are said in verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. There's a day coming, Isaiah is saying, when yes, even though my people have been unfaithful, there's going to be one who's going to come through the family tree who is going to take care of business, is going to set everything right. Listen to Jeremiah 33. I know I didn't tell you to turn there. I just want you to listen. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, The Lord is Our Righteousness. Folks, this story makes sense of the rest of the Bible. It's a story about God sending his son Jesus to fix everything that was broken. It's a story about him doing it through the people that he promised to be good to even though they were wayward. And here at Christmas, there is no cross without the birth of this, this sprig who has come up from the stump. There is no salvation apart from him. This is why, uh, this is why we go through Old Testament on Sunday nights is because the New Testament doesn't make sense. Well, first, I could say it's not as rich, but that's it's not even strong enough. It do, the New Testament doesn't even make sense apart from all the promises of God in the Old Testament. He has promised that He will make His glory known on the earth. He will fill the earth with His glory as the waters cover the seas, and He will do it by the Great Commission. So, I would would end, uh, I suppose, this way. God is sovereign in salvation. He has sent His Son. And this should give us courage to share the gospel because God has a people and God will preserve a remnant. There will be some who when they hear the gospel will see it as beautiful and they will turn and they will believe. God is working in hearts of people just as He was working at the close of the Old Testament and the opening of the New Testament. Friends, we do not even know whose hearts God is working in now. Let us be active in sharing the gospel so that they might hear and so that those seeds that that other people and that God have, have planted in their hearts might spring forth and they might turn and believe in this God who is sovereign and who has given his very own son for their salvation. I hope this is encouraging to you. I hope seeing a little bit of this will help set your gaze on Jesus in this season. And I pray that in your families and your households and among those that you come into contact with, that the gospel of Jesus Christ, seen in God's love for us at the cradle, the cradle sets us up to see the cross. And the cross sets us up to see the crown that Jesus will get and that all will get who believe in him. Friends, let's praise God for that. And let's do it in prayer. God, we thank you that you um, not simply went to the cross, but that you went to the cradle. And the fact that you came through a cradle and went to the cross, that gives you a crown. Your enemies tried to give you a crown of thorns, but your Father gave you a better crown, a crown that He offers to everyone who will turn and believe in the finished work of your Son, Jesus Lord, help us, help us to despise our own good works. Our own good works are worth nothing in terms of getting us to you, getting us in heaven, making us right. The only thing that makes us right is the finished work of Jesus. Help that to be, help that to be where we hang our hat. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.